Let's pray. God, I, I ask that we would always remember that you're good, that you sit on the throne, and that no matter what's going on in our lives, you're in control. You know what's happening, God, and you're allowing it to happen in our lives so that we can be more like you, Jesus, so that we can have greater endurance to run this race that you've marked out before us, so that we could ultimately be closer to you, more like you. God, I pray that as we get into your word now, though, that you would really speak to our hearts, minister to us, show us what it means to truly live for you, to leave the world behind us, to leave the cares of this world behind us, and to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray this in your precious son's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Numbers uh, as we go right through the Bible. You know, we did, we are, we've already made our way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now we are almost through Numbers, almost through Numbers. And uh, it's pretty exciting as we make our way just stri- straight through the Bible that we've already come this far. Uh, it feels like just yesterday we were in the first book in the Bible. We were in Genesis, and now here we are in Numbers. Um, a lot's been going on. In the book of Numbers, remember, what, what is the, the theme of the book of Numbers? Numbers is the book of grumbling, complaining, that's right. And that's all the children of Israel do throughout the entire book of Numbers is grumble and complain and murmur. And they're just down on life all the time. As we've seen through the book of Numbers, grumbling and complaining is ultimately rooted in one thing, and that's disbelief. It's disbelief that God is who he says he is. Because listen, if God is who he says he is, if he does sit on the throne of the universe, if he does hold everything together, as Colossians says that, you know, in him were all things created and through him all things consist. In other words, he holds all things together. If that's true, if God is who he says he is, we have nothing to grumble about. We have nothing to complain about. We have nothing to be bummed about. Why? Again, it's not because life doesn't suck. We've already established that. Situations and circumstances do suck sometimes. But the reality is, is that we can look to God and remember that he's good. Remember that he has brought us this far and he will take us the rest of the way. And so the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in the book of Exodus and and making their way to, to Mount Sinai where they received the law there in Leviticus. And then numbers, you remember, they pick up from Sinai and they're making their way through the prom or through the desert to the promised land. And on their way in chapter 14, what happens? Well, they get to the edge of the promised land. They send 12 spies in. They send 12 spies in and they get freaked out. They see giants in the land. And so they come back and they tell all the people of Israel, we can't do it. We can't take these people. They're giants. They're huge. I I mean, just look at us. We're normal sized people, you know, five, six feet. These people are nine, 10 feet tall. We can't win against them. All the while forgetting that it wasn't them who were going to, to defeat the inhabitants of the promised land. It wasn't them who were going to defeat the Canaanites. It was God. You know, as it says in Psalms, the horse is prepared for war, but the battle belongs to the Lord. 
You know, it's ultimately God who is going to take them into the promised land. God didn't say you will conquer these people. God said, I will conquer these people for you. And they're going to fall beneath your feet. You're not even going to have to put up a fight. But Israel didn't believe God. And so they grumbled and they complained. In chapter 14, they said, we can't do it. We can't inherit the promised land. It's better for us to just go back to Egypt, to go back where we came from. And so what did God do? He stopped him. He said, I can't believe you. You saw me take you out of Egypt. You saw all these plagues that I poured out on Egypt. You saw me part the Red Sea. You saw me come down and lead you this far in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You saw these great and mighty miracles. And you don't believe that I can deliver you into the promised land? Listen, every single one of you who has seen all of these miracles that I've done, every single one of you who I brought out of Egypt, not one of you are going to inherit the promised land, but your kids will. And so he told them, turn around and you're going to make a 40-year little detour through the wilderness on your way into the promised land. And so they made their their detour through the promised land. And now we're coming to the place where every single one of them who has seen the miracles of Egypt, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb and Moses, every single one of them have died. And they're now at the edge of the promised land. They've made it. We've already made it through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, or thereabout. It's about the 39th year. It's about the 39th year. And the book of Deuteronomy, which we're going to read starting next week, uh, the book of Deuteronomy covers the last year before they really go into the promised land, the 40th year. And uh, that's where Moses just sort of goes and, and recounts all of the law for this new generation. But here we are. We're there. We are on the plains of Moab on our way to the Jordan River, which is the last obstacle before we walk into the promised land. We're there. We've done it. We've attained it. And that's where we're going to pick up now in Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32. Flip over with me if you would. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 32. I, uh, the kid that I was counseling, uh, when I went to visit him in the hospital, he didn't have his Bible, so I gave him my Bible. So I'm using my Bible from sixth grade. So this is kind of interesting. There's highlights and notes in here that make no sense to me anymore. And it's NIV, which I haven't read since sixth grade. So bear with me. Normally I... I read out of, you know, my my ESV translation. This is the NIV. Probably be a little bit more understandable. Uh, But Numbers chapter 32, we're going to start reading in verse 1. The Reubenites and the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sabom, Nebo, and beyond. 
the land that the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we've found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. We'll pause right there. What's happening? Well, like I said, we've now made our way 40 years through the wilderness, and they're finally on the edge of the promised land. They're finally there. They've made it to the Jordan River. And on their way across, with the promised land in view, God's perfect promise for them, we have two of the clans of Israel, two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, on their way over. They, they see the Jordan in front of them, and they look at the land that they're in. And they say, you know what? This land's pretty good for cattle, and we have a ton of cattle. It would be really comfortable for us. It would be really convenient for us if we didn't actually inherit the promised land. If we didn't inherit God's perfect promise for our lives, it would be more convenient for us to stay on this side of the Jordan. It would be more comfortable for us here in this land than to go into the promised land. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen once we cross over the Jordan. We, we haven't seen that land yet. We don't know if it's going to be good for cattle, but we know this land is good. Why don't we just stay here? And so they go to Moses and they, they pose this to him. Hey, Mo, I know that we've been wandering in the wilderness now for 40 years, and ultimately it's been about 42 or 43 years since uh, our forefathers left Egypt, since God miraculously took us out of slavery in Egypt. And we've been wandering for a really long time, but hey, you know, we were kind of thinking, maybe we shouldn't go into the promised land. Maybe we should just stay here. Is that cool with you? Well, we'll see what Moses has to say in verse 6. Moses said to the Gadites and to the Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? We'll pause right there again. See, there's something so crucial and something so important happening here that we often do as Christians in our lives today. You see, you remember Egypt is a picture of what? It's a picture of the world. It's a picture of sin. We were once slaves to sin, living in the world. We had no choice but to do what was wrong. We couldn't obey God. We couldn't follow after Him. And we definitely couldn't go to heaven. We were slaves in Egypt. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything we wanted to do. And so God miraculously came in and saved the day. And saved us out of slavery to our sin. Saved us out of bondage to Egypt. And has now brought us and is bringing us through the wilderness on our way to the promised land. His perfect promise for your life. And so what happens along the way? Well, as we've already studied through the book of Numbers, oftentimes we grumble and complain and we look back on Egypt. We look back on the world and just like the Israelites, you know, they said, oh man, all there is is this stupid manna that God miraculously provides every day for us to eat. We remember Egypt where there was leeks and melons and free fish and life was so great there. Yeah, oftentimes we as Christians on our journey through this life, 
living as Christians, we look back at our past lives and we say, hey, you know what? It might be pretty good for us to go back there. Egypt was pretty nice. It wasn't so bad, really. I mean, there was, there was drugs and, and alcohol flowing freely, and it was pretty awesome. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I could live my life how I wanted to. There was no God in heaven trying to tell me how to do my own thing. I think I want to go back there. The reality is, though, is that we've completely forgotten the past. We have a, a skewed perspective of our past, and we really believe that it was better than it was. And the problem is, is that our eyes aren't fixed on our future. Again, the promised land that God has promised for us. What is that? What's, what's this great promise that God has promised for us? What's our promised land as Christians? It's a couple things. It's a couple things. John 3.16 tells us that it's eternal life. And John 17.3, I think I just said John 16.3 and it's John 3.16. Sorry, I, I genuinely think if there's numeric dyslexia, I have it. I'm not sure if that exists, but it's got to because I do it all the time. I flip numbers. John 3.16 tells us that it's eternal life. John 17, 3, Jesus clarifies it by saying that this is eternal life. That we may know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. What's the great promised land for us? It's the ability to have a relationship with God. Not only here in this life. Not only now can we have a relationship with the God who created the universe. But we ultimately get to spend eternity in heaven with that God. It's a great promised land that he has for us. Truly a land flowing with milk and honey. Are there giants in the land? Are there problems and obstacles that we have to face? Absolutely. But God has promised to take every single obstacle out for us as we only enter in. As we only walk in faith believing that God, what you have for me, I don't know what it is yet. I don't know what you have for my life, but God, I trust you and I'm going to walk boldly through the promised land knowing that you're good and that you do have a promise for me, that you do have a plan and that you are going to provide. Listen, we as Christians, sometimes we play Israel and we look back on Egypt, but oftentimes it's not quite so sinister. We don't look back on Egypt. We don't look back on our past life and think, oh, if only I was there again. But instead what we do is we look at our life now and we say, why go any further? This looks pretty nice right here. Why would I do anything else? This life is awfully comfortable right here. I know that God has called me to be making disciples of all nations, starting in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. I know I'm supposed to be evangelizing. I know I'm supposed to be telling people about how great he is and that they can have a relationship with him and ultimately 
spend eternity with God in heaven. I know I should be telling people this, and I know God has laid it on my heart to be a missionary to Ecuador or Uganda or Belize. I know that God has laid it on my heart to go into the mission field or to be a pastor. I know that God has called me to be in ministry, but gosh, that's hard, and I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know how God's going to provide for me in that way. I don't know how I'm going to make it or how I'm going to be able to support a family. I don't know how I can do that. But what I'm doing right now, the the American dream, college and possibly a master's degree followed by a successful career of climbing up the corporate ladder, a white picket fence in our two-story tract home with a golden retriever out front, A nice 401k so that our kids can have grandkids and we can retire and enjoy our grandchildren and spoil them because we never did for our children. And and, and that's the American dream. And gosh, that seems really comfortable. And I can plan that out. I can see that. That looks comfortable. That looks convenient. That looks convenient for what I want and what I have and what I want to have. This land looks good for cattle. Often we as Christians, we make the mistake that Israel is making here. And rather than looking back on our past life, we look at our life now and say, I would rather enjoy the creature comforts of the land, this side of the Jordan, than the unknown beyond. God, I would rather stay right here where it's comfortable than to venture out into the great unknown, the promise that you have for my life, and trust you. Again, both, as we look at the book of Numbers, grumbling and complaining, remember it's all rooted in unbelief. Looking back on our past life, looking at Egypt and wanting to go back there, and looking at our life now and saying, this is pretty comfortable, this is pretty convenient. I can plan my life for myself, plan out my my 5-year, 10-year, 15-year, 50-year plan. And that's comfortable, that's convenient. I can make it comfortable and convenient. But to say, God, I don't know what you have for me. I don't know what lies beyond the Jordan River. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I trust you and I'm walking in you. Whatever you want, I'll do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. If you say Africa, I'm going to hop on a plane uh, before you even tell me which city. Just because I want to be obedient to you. God, I, I want to go where you send me. I want to talk to who you send me to. I want to pour into whoever you put in my path. I want to live for you. I want to do hard things. I want to daily die to myself, pick up my cross, and follow after you, Jesus. I want to live my life recklessly for the gospel because that's what you called me to do. You've called me to sell everything for you. Jesus Jesus explains the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a man who is walking through a field And he stumbles upon some treasure. And finding the treasure, he goes and he sells all that he has. He sells his chariot on 22 rims. And uh, 
his Capernaum Bay home and uh, the house, the, the beach house on the Sea of Galilee. He sells it all. He says goodbye to his friends and family. He says, peace out. I found this great treasure. He sells everything that he has, even the clothes on his back, to go sit naked in the dirt just to have the treasure. He sells everything that he has to buy this field so that he can just have the treasure. Listen, the treasure wasn't a means to an end. It wasn't, I'm going to sell everything so I can buy this field, so I can have this treasure, so I can invest it and buy more. The treasure wasn't a means to the end for this man. This was it. This was all he cared about. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like that. That you give up your entire life, everything that you are, everything that you were, every, everything that you wanted to be, all of your passions, all of your pursuits, all of your possessions. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is to say, I don't care about any of that compared to how much I care about you, Jesus, and how much I care about the promised land. The promised land, again, to to know you and to have this relationship with you and to go wherever you send me and to do whatever you want. Jesus goes on to say that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes through a market looking for a pearl. And he finds this pearl, this one single pearl, and for joy over it, for joy over this one pearl that he's found, he goes and he sells all that he has to purchase the pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says. Listen, the the promised land is not without sacrifice. It does involve, well, not knowing what lies beyond. Again, remember the children of Israel, they haven't seen the promised land yet. They've been told that it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but they've never seen it. They don't really know for sure. They can't know for sure. But to inherit the promised land, to take hold of it, is to trust in God and say, God, I don't know what you have for me, but I want it. I don't know what lies beyond, but I'm going, knowing that you're in control, that you have a plan and a promise for me. Listen, family, let us not make the mistake that Israel was making here, that the tribe of Reuben and the the tribe of Gad are making here in saying, I don't need your promise, God. I just need my comfort. I don't need your, your perfect promise. I just need what's convenient for me and for what's mine. Listen, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad were allowing their positions to dictate their inheritance rather than God's word. And my question for us today is, do we do the same thing? Do we allow what we have to dictate where our treasure ultimately is rather than God's word? Another way to put it, and maybe a a clearer way to put this, is where's your treasure at? Where's your treasure at? Is it in this life or is it in God's promise? Is it in what you see? Or is it in what God knows? 
Reuben and Gad, they saw that the land was good. But God knew that the promised land was better. Listen, you may see a path in your life that's good. There is a way that seems right to a man. It seems good, but its end is the way of death. My question for you is this. Are you allowing what you see to dictate where you stay? Or are you going with what God knows is best for you? What God knows is better for you? Reuben and Gad were allowing themselves to sell short of God's perfect promise for their life for a bunch of cows, for some greener pastures. Rather than the grass being greener on the other side of the fence, the grass was greener on the other side of the Jordan for Reuben and Gad. And so they asked Moses to stay there. And so what was Moses' response? How can you stay here being mindful of nothing but your convenience and comfort while your brothers go in and inherit the promised land? There's another little take that I want to point out to us about this that we do as Christians sometimes. Listen, we say, let the missionaries do missions and I'm going to stay here where it's comfortable and convenient in my home in Southern California. Let people who are called to uh, be missionally minded and to preach the gospel, let them do their thing uh, because I'm just going to stay here in, in California in Riverside. I'm going to keep my job and I'm going to continue to do things that are convenient and comfortable for me. And uh, hey, praise God for you uh, because we can't all be missionaries. That is so wrong. That is so wrong. And I'm so guilty of it sometimes myself. It's so easy for me to say, you go. But listen, when the church starts saying, I'll send you, you go, rather than send me, God, I'll go, we're in serious trouble. God's not looking for people to send others. God's looking for you to go. Am I saying that you need to, right now, tomorrow, go uh, walk into your uh, bank Liquidate all your finances and hop on a plane to Nigeria and go be a missionary? No. I'm not saying that. But I am asking, would you? Would you? If God laid it on your heart to go, to leave Southern California and to go to Louisiana... (laughs) For no other reason other than that he's sending you there. Not because you have a job there. Not because you have family there. Not because you have friends there. But because God is sending you there. Would you go? If God was calling you to Belfast. Would you just hop on a plane to Belfast? Just to go and and do whatever God has laid it upon your heart to do? Listen, one of my greatest uh, inspirations of all time is Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she is just an amazing lady. Uh, we all know her very well because she uh, hid Jews, right? Uh, which was illegal. Um, it was illegal during the Holocaust to hide, conceal Jews, but she did anyway. 
She and her sister uh, were thrown into a concentration camp. Her sister and her, her entire family were killed, and Corrie Ten Boom alone emerged alive. God preserved her. And we, we think that's so awesome when we're all about Corrie Ten Boom in the concentration camp. But I'm not nearly as impressed with Corrie Ten Boom in the concentration camp as Corrie Ten Boom outside the concentration camp. Because once she was released, the Holocaust was over. You know what she did? She called herself a, a tramp for the Lord. A tramp for the Lord. And what she did is she went back home and, and she was there and she, she began to preach the gospel to people around her home. But God laid it on her heart. She said, I want you to go to the United States. And so she said, okay. And so she took a rucksack with a few articles of clothing with no money to her name and walked to the uh, boat. It's on boat stay. I don't know what you'd call it. She went to the docks and uh, went to buy a ticket to board a ship to the United States. And the guy said, well, do you have any money? No. But I'm sure that God wants me to go and I know he's going to provide. Someone pays for a ticket. She's on the boat on the way over. Someone's like, so where are you staying? I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Why are you going to the United States? I don't know. God told me to go, so I'm going. She lands there in the port, and uh, she goes to like the local YWCA. She ends, up, she ends up at the YWCA, and she stays there for like two or three days, and she's just out preaching the gospel to people. This is, at this point, I think she's about a 60-year-old woman preaching the gospel, uh, just out telling people about Jesus, and she comes back to the YWCA, and they tell her, hey, you can't stay here anymore. Uh, you know, we have a, a limit. And she said, do you, do you have any idea where you're going? And Corey Ten Boom said, no. She said, do you have any money? No. I just know that the Lord's going to provide. As she was walking down the street, a woman walked up to her and said, God's laid it on my heart uh, to ask you if you need a place to stay. And Corey Ten Boom said, yes, I do, actually. I knew that you'd be coming. And, uh, and so the woman lets Corey Ten Boom stay in her house. And Corey Ten Boom begins her circuit through this woman of uh, speaking in churches and preaching the gospel and telling people everywhere of her story and of her desire to just go wherever God sends her. Shortly after, God laid it on her heart to go to Germany. So you know what she did? She went to Germany. She didn't have any money. She didn't know where she was going. She didn't know what she was doing when she got to Germany. She recounts in, in her book titled Tramp for the Lord, that there were times where she would come to a city, she'd get there, and literally, okay, God, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm here, so do your thing. And God would use her in radical ways. Was it unknown? Absolutely. There was nothing more unknown for Corey Ten Boom than the next day. She didn't know where she was going. She didn't know what God was going to use her to do there. But God used this woman in miraculous and radical ways. Why? Because she had the attitude of, send me, God. I'll go. You want me to go to America? I'll go to America. You want me to go to Budapest? I'll go to Budapest. You want me to go to Switzerland? I'll go to Switzerland. Wherever you want me to go, God, I'm there. I'm yours. Listen, my question for us today as Christians is are we more obsessed with our comfort than following God to the ends of the earth? 
Are, are we more likely to tell someone else, I send you, you go, than send me, I go? God says, hey, why is it right for your brothers to go into the promised land and to fight for my name and to trust me and to go and do radical things in my name? And to make my glory known throughout all the earth by you inheriting the promised land? Why is it right for you to sit back on the sidelines and not take part in the fight? Listen, God is saying the same thing for us today as Christians. What makes us think that we can just sit by on the sidelines while missionaries are being torn apart? Not only physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually all over the world. What makes us think that we can... Just stay here where it's comfortable for our possessions, for our stuff. Rather than boldly going wherever God calls us and leads us to go. People ask me all the time, uh, what are you doing with your life? I don't know. Well, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? I want to do ministry. Oh, so do you want to be a pastor at, at Harvest? I don't know if that's what happens. Well, are you, are you going to go plant a church? Yeah, probably. Oh, where do you want to plant church? I don't know. Wherever God tells me to plant church, when are you going to go? When he says. When he says go, I'm, I'm not going to be here the next week. Everyone's going to be like, what happened to Tyler? Oh, he, he went to North Carolina. What do you mean he went to North Carolina? God said go and he went. That was it. It's done. He's gone. You'll never see him again. Unless God calls him back. Listen, why? Is it because I'm anything special? Far from it. Far from it. Is it scary? Absolutely. It's terrifying. It's completely, absolutely terrifying not knowing what tomorrow might hold. Not knowing what God might do. Is it exciting? Completely. Do I trust him with all my life? Listen, family, As Christians, we're not called to be comfortable. We're not called to a life of convenience. Jesus says that the road and the gate that leads to to eternal life, the road and the gate on the way to the kingdom of heaven, to the promised land, it's narrow and it's tough. And there are few who enter thereby. So if you're living a convenient Christian life, I got to challenge you biblically and say, examine yourself and see if you're actually living a Christian life because there's not really any such thing as a convenient Christian life. Christianity is far from convenient. It's difficult. It's trying. It should always keep us on our toes. We should always be ready and on edge that we could be gone at any moment and going somewhere, doing something radical. Why? Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. That's what it means to inherit the promised land. It means not knowing what lies ahead. And it means trusting in God that he is going to provide a way. He is going to provide a way. But Reuben and Gad, they're not interested in trusting in God. They're interested in creature comforts. Verse 8, we'll continue reading. 
This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barina to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger was aroused that day, and he swore this oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of the men twenty years or more who came up out of Egypt will see the land, I promise, an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the desert 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. And here you are, you brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave this people in the desert and you will be the cause of their destruction. Moses says, here we go again. Didn't we just go through this 40 years ago with your dads? Your dad stood right here and said the exact same thing to me. And you remember what happened 40 years in the wilderness? Again, remember, it wasn't a timeout. It was a death sentence for all those who disobeyed God. All your dads died because they said this kind of thing. What do you think you're doing? You're making God even more angry at us. Didn't we learn the first time? Moses rebukes Reuben and Gad harshly, and they respond with a changed heart. In verse 16, then they came up to him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children. But we are ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and our children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east side of the Jordan. Then Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if you will go armed over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out before him, then when this land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities for your women and children, and pens for your flocks, but do what you have promised. The Gadites and the Reubenites said to Moses, We, your servants, will do as the Lord commands. Our children and wives, our livestock and herds will remain here in the cities of Gilead. But your servants, every man armed for battle, will cross over to fight before the Lord, just as the Lord says. They have a change of heart, or so it might seem. They say, okay, you know what, Moses, you're right. We are going to go in. We're going to be on the front lines of the battle. We're going to arm ourselves. We're going to go in and fight in the promised land until every single one of our brothers has inherited the promised land. And then we're going to leave. And then we're going to go back. Then we're going to go back outside the promised land. And we're going to go back to, our, back to what's comfortable for us. Listen, they did have a change of heart, but they were far from repentant. 
How do I know that? How do I know that? Because they said our women, our children, our livestock, all of our possessions are going to stay here. And then we'll go fight. And then we'll go do what God has commanded us. Then we'll go preach the gospel in a sense. Then we'll go make disciples of all nations. Then we'll go do whatever God has for us. But our women and our children are staying here. Listen, Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Reuben and Gad, they may have agreed to go obey the Lord. And they may have agreed to go fight alongside their brothers and sisters. But they still had no interest in God's promise for their life. They were doing the work. It was all outside. It was all on the outside. But at the end, they didn't care about the promised land. They wanted to go back, back home. They wanted to go back where it was comfortable, back where it was convenient, back where it was safe. And so often we as Christians, we can have this mentality as well. God, I will go into ministry, but I'm going to compromise with you a little bit. Okay, I'll go into ministry and I'll do that. I'll do whatever it is that you've called me to do. Um, I'll go, uh, I will live a life, uh, you know, continue in my business endeavors here and give 90% of my income away to missions to be able to further the work that you're doing. I'm going to live radically, God. I'm going to do whatever it is that you've called me to do. But in the end... I'm still going to have my creature comforts. I'm going to go back in the end once I'm satisfied that I've done all that it is that you could ever ask of me to do. Then I'm going to go back and live my life my way. Listen, Reuben and Gad had a change of heart. But their treasure still remained outside of God's promise. Their heart still remained outside of God's promise. Their hearts were far from him. Let's continue reading. Verse 28. Then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua son of Nun and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. He said to them, if the Gadites and Reubenites, every man armed for battle crosses over the Jordan with you before the Lord, then when the land is subdued before you, give them the land of Gilead as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you armed, they must accept their possession with you in Canaan. The Gadites and the Reubenites answered, Your servants will do what the Lord has said. We will cross over before the Lord into Canaan armed, but the property we inherit will be on this side of the Jordan. Then Moses gave to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the king of Sihon, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the whole land with its cities and the territory around them. The Gadites built up Dibon, Atroth, Aroer, Atroth, gosh, there's so many awful names for me to pronounce, Atroth, Shofan, Jazer, Jogbeha, Beth Nimrah and Beth Haran as fortified cities and built pens for their flocks. And the Reubenites built Hezbon, Eliah, and 
Kirithaim, as well as Nebo and Baalmion. These names were changed. And Sibma. They gave names to the cities they rebuilt. The descendants of Mekir, son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and drove out the Amorites who were there. So Moses gave Gilead to the Macarites, the descendants of Manasseh, and they settled there. Jer, a descendant of Manasseh, captured the, their settlements and called them Havoth Jer. And Noba captured Kenath and its surrounding settlements and called it Noba after himself. So ultimately, Moses agrees to, to their compromise. He says, if that's what you want to do, do whatever you want. If you want to settle for less than God's best, if you want to settle for less than God's perfect promise for your life, then go for it. I'm not going to stop you. And so they did. As we're going to see in the book of Numbers, pardon me, we're in Numbers, as we're going to see after Deuteronomy in the book of Joshua, when the children of Israel go and inherit the, the promised land, the Reubenites and the Gadites, they do. They follow in. They, they actually head up the charge. And they help their brothers take out all the inhabitants of the land. And then what do they do? They make their way back to Gilead, back where it was comfortable for them, back where it was convenient for them. I was going to find the passage, but I forgot to do it ahead of time. I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to recount the story from memory. It's one of my least favorite things to do, but I dropped the ball. Sorry. I blame it on the headache. But what ended up happening, like I said, they ended up helping their, their brothers inherit the promised land, and then they left. And they went back to the land that was comfortable and convenient for them, and they settled there. Did they live happily ever after? Did that land end up being fruitful and and being a great place for these people of God? Well, I want to recall to your memory a story. Jesus and his disciples get in a boat, and he says, hey, let's, uh, let's go over to the other side there. And uh, they hopped in the boat. And went across to the land of the Gadarenes. And in the land of the Gadarenes, there was this man. And he was demon-possessed. And uh, he comes running up to them. And Jesus says, who are you? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And Legion says, please, Lord, don't send us into the abyss, but allow us to leave this man and go into these pigs over here. And so Jesus says, be gone. And Legion, this demon, leaves this man and enters into these pigs, and they go and they run off the cliffs. Then this man, the Bible says, he asks to, to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, Go and, and, and stay here in, in, in your home, in a sense. And so what does the man do? It says that he goes to the Decropolis, which are these ten Greek cities that were there in the land of, of the Gadarenes. And uh, these ten Greek cities. And he went and he preached the gospel. Well, I've been there. Not too long ago, 
I was I was in Israel and I got to see the place which is traditionally known as the spot where Jesus cast legion into the pigs in the land of Gadarenes and they went running off the cliff. And right around there, they know it's probably the place because right around there is the Decropolis, these ten Greek cities. Listen, I bring up this story because it's important in that what was this land? It was the land of the Gadarenes. Where's this land found? On the other side of the Jordan. This is the, the piece of land, listen, where Gad settled. It's called Gadarenes because it's traced down through the years to be the territory of the tribe of Gad. This is where they settled. And now a couple thousand, a few thousand years later, what do we find in the land? Pigs, demons, and the world. Understand pigs were not lawful for Jews to own. They, could, they were disgusting, unclean creatures. They couldn't eat them. They can't even really be around them. Uh, there's no purpose for a, for a Jew to have pigs. But here in the land of Gad, what do we find? Pigs. More than pigs, we find demons. The enemy has a total foothold in the land of Gad. Now a few thousand years later. Quite a few generations later. And lastly, what do we find? The place is spotted by the world. The Decropolis, these ten Greek cities, were not a, uh, they weren't a, a place of purity. <laughs> it was sort of like modern-day Vegas. What happens in the Decropolis stays in the Decropolis. Listen, here's my point. Here's my point. When we, like Reuben and Gad, sell out for less than God's perfect promise, when we allow ourselves to be ruled and reigned and governed by what's comfortable and what's convenient for us, and we allow ourselves to look at our life now and say, God, I don't want your promise. I want this land here. Forget the promised land. I want the land on this side of the Jordan. You may know that your promise for my life is great, but I can see that this land here is here and now is good. Listen, when we do that, when we sell short of God's perfect promise for us, we end up with a life and a family of pigs, demons, and the world. Listen, you today, you may be a Christian that just sells short. And you may live life as a Christian in, in obedience to God, but your heart is far from him, like Reuben and Gad. You may be a Christian here today, but I promise you, if you live your life selling short of God's perfect promise, your children and your grandchildren will not follow God. They won't follow God because you have not left a lasting legacy of radical obedience to God in your life and in your family. When we allow ourselves to sell short of God's perfect promise, 
We end up with pigs, demons, and the world in our life rather than God. It's so easy for us as Christians as we bring this to a close and as we bring this chapter to a close. It's easy for us to repeat the mistakes that Israel made in the book of Numbers. Of looking back at Egypt, looking back at the world and saying, that was a lot better than what I've got now. And of looking at our life now and saying, God, you may have a perfect promise for me, but that's kind of scary because I don't know what it is. I know that this is good right here. So I'm going to say, forget you and what you want. And I'm going to stop right here. And I'm going to live life right here and create a life of convenience and comfort for myself. Rather than going into the promised land, which is going to be filled with problems and persecution and your providence. I'm going to create for myself convenience and comfort. Listen, it's easy for us as Christians to do that. And listen, it's, e- it's really easy for us as Christians in America to do that. I genuinely believe it's more difficult to be a Christian in America than it is in a third world country. Because in America, we have the, we have the temptation to indulge ourselves a little bit too much. We have the ability to allow affluence to influence our our life and our decisions. That's why when you go to third world countries, you find it so easy for them to be generous with what little they have. You can go to a third world country and they'll give you their food for a week and be offended if you don't eat it. You know? But here in America, you come here and it's like, we're, we're, so, we're so tight, you know, with what we have. Because we have so much. Listen, it's easy for us as Christians in America to, um, to sell ourselves short of God's perfect promise for our life. And listen, I'm guilty of it too. And I'm not saying that we need to go live as monks or that you need to go and move to Uzbekistan. But I will say this. If God lays it on your heart to go to Uzbekistan, you better go. You better drop everything and go. In a, heart, in a heartbeat's notice. Because that's what it is to live in the promised land. That's what it is to, to inherit the kingdom of heaven. To trust God. To trust God and to do radical things. Let's not make the mistake of Reuben and Gad. Amen? Let's live lives radically for the kingdom. Knowing that the most we have here is 60, 70 years, and after that is eternity. So lay up for yourselves, not treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where there's no moth, no rust to destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. King, help us to be kingdom Minded. Help us to live for you and not for ourselves. It's so easy for us to 
to just be comfortable and to live lives of convenience, God. You know. You see it in us. But God, help us to, to be radical for you because we love you. Help us to live lives of just complete obedience to you that we would truly say, send me, God, wherever you want, I'll go. God, pick me. Pick me. I want to be the one to, to go into Iraq or to Iran and to, to be a minister of your gospel. I want to be the one to smuggle bi- Bibles into China. Send me, God, I'll go. I want to go to the remotest island off the coast of Papua New Guinea where they've never heard the gospel before. Send me, I'll go. I want to go to, to Belize or Venezuela. I want to go to Guatemala. Send me, I'll go. I want to pick up my life, just put everything behind me, my friends, my family. I want to say goodbye to it all and follow you to, to Mississippi if that's where you want me to go. Send me, I'll go, God. Please help us to live for you. Please help us to be obedient to you. Please help us to live radically for your gospel, for your truth, because you are more than worth it. Your message is more than worth it. We love you, God, but teach us to love you more. In your precious son's name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you this week. May God cause his face to shine on on you and be gracious to you. And I pray that God would lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen.